you're listening to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable, on Twitter at rebelsround, or on our website, rebelsroundtable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report, covering all things Rebels animated series. And Happy New Year! I'm Jonathan, your host, and 2015 looks to be an exciting year for Star Wars fans. We have Celebration Anaheim coming up, and of course, no one can forget that The Force Awakens opens in a little less than a year, in December. I know we're all looking forward to that. But before we get to any of that, I think we need to talk about some Rebels. And even though it's a new year, I'm here with some old friends, and I'd like to welcome Nathan. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. It feels like we haven't recorded at all this year. Barrent. <laughs> Nathan. Uh, you'll never change. I love you. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm back. We're all back to talk this first episode of the new year, 2015. And we have some exciting news from Anaheim about season two of Rebels. And I'm sure Jonathan will talk about that, but it's good to be back. And we can't forget Mark. Hey, guys, thanks for upgrading the plush in these seats, man. They're starting to get a little rough. Before we get into the episode itself, there's a bit of a news flash on what the future of season two of the Rebels animated series is. And to give us this information, Barrent. Ah, yes. Over the holiday, the Christmas and New Year's holiday, we got some information that Star Wars Celebration at Anaheim next year in April, they are going to debut debut season two of the Rebels television series. It's kind of shaky. It's kind of uh, not clear on how many episodes they're actually going to be showing. If we look in the past of how they've done this, it would probably be at least two episodes. Uh, if we go back to Celebration 6 when they wanted to show us the Young Jedi episodes, they actually showed us all four of those episodes. So it's the whole arc. So I'm thinking it's going to be at least two. We know it's going to be one. And I will be there watching it. And I will tweet it. I will put it on Facebook. And I'll be back to discuss it on the following episode after the convention. So I'll keep you guys updated for that. And we look forward to hearing it. I'll try to get behind the black curtain and uh, maybe talk to Filoni. I'm usually lucky with that. So this first episode of the new year is Path of the Jedi. And I'll say I was really pleased with how they kicked this one off. It starts off sort of an indeterminate amount of time after the last episode where Ezra had his brush with the dark side. And it's nice to see that they're dealing with the repercussions of that. What did you guys think of this episode? I got to say, I I was very, very impressed with the way they did the opening thing right off the get-go. I mean, I've not enjoyed the kind of theme that they've had going and the way they did it now i was really kind of hoping that that's going to be a trend we see from here on out because it was very seamless 
I don't know. I like the way that it kind of jumped right into things and stuff. For me, though, I think one of the biggest things about when this episode jumps right in was the aspect of Jedi temples. By the time the episode was over, thinking, wow, was that really a Jedi temple? Like, it felt more like the Cave of Ilum or something like that. But I don't know. There were a lot of really cool concepts and stuff like that going on through here. Uh, some really cool stuff with Yoda showing up at the end and stuff. But I was getting a kick out of the beginning right away, though, because just finding out that there was this aspect of Kanan where he's, you know, coming to uh, a, a grips with the fact that he may not be what it takes to get Ezra to Jedi training, to get to completion. We're going to take you to this place that it, it may get you all the way there. I don't know. I, I'd like the fact that it brought the conflict between the, the Padawan and the Master. You know, I mean, Ezra's kind of like, you know, maybe my Master doesn't think I have what it takes. and I thought you were going to make me a Jedi, and you said I was a Jedi. I, I don't know. The whole dynamic between those two was really fun. Yeah, and Kanan... He wasn't trained all the way through to Jedi either. And it's kind of mentioned, Yoda kind of chides him about that at the end of the, the episode. But, you know, Kanan's got to get over that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. he, he's got to get over that. He's He's got to get into his role. And I think after this episode, uh, he will. And it kind of has me think back to uh, the other episode, the last episode where they mentioned the, when he's originally trying to train Ezra, and, you know, he brings up the do not do or do not. There is no try. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan had mentioned that he kind of explains it at the end. But I think we kind of skipped over something that was really, uh, really big to Kanan, where he says at the end of that episode, I will train you. There is no try. I may fail. You may fail. But there is no try. And I think it's continuing on with that. I think we see a, a, a Jedi temple, which was really cool. It's kind of more like a tomb than a temple. But man, the only thing I can think of is they have everything on Lothal, don't they? Like Lothal's the new Tatooine. Everything <laughs> is on Lothal. I just say I really like the episode. The, the, the Yoda element, which I'm sure we'll get into in depth, is one thing that, I don't know, it's both cool and frustrating at the same time. It could either be one of the episode's greatest strengths or its greatest weaknesses. Uh, the discussion I've seen on this episode has tended to kind of split down the middle. Some loved it, some absolutely hated having Yoda there. I liked it. We'll get into impressions on it, of course. But I think the episode as a whole, it's a really good look into sort of the psyche of Ezra, the psyche of Kanan, and just the concept of what is it to be a Jedi in this era when there really isn't a Jedi Order. There are many times in this episode that I felt myself... I guess moved is the right word for it. Uh, I don't tend to cry much, if ever. I actually kind of wonder if I'm even capable of it sometimes anymore. But it's just one of those things where you get to that point where it's sort of like you almost feel like your lip is going to start to tremble, like tears could come if it just pushed it a little bit further. And I like that. It's it's like seeing the last scene of the final episode of Quantum Leap for me. There are certain iconic things that happen within uh, storytelling on film that sometimes can hit me that way. And this episode did. Definitely something that feels like the series is going in the right direction. Well, you know, it was interesting because my children and I are on winter break and I was able to watch this episode with them and had a chance to talk to them about their impressions of this episode before I was able, I'm able to talk to you guys. You know, my two sons, eight and 10, the 10 year old really liked it. But he picked up on things that I guess I kind of knew, but I was I was really surprised how dead on he was. He started referencing back to the Clone Wars episode, The Gathering. 
And he's like, yeah, dad, this is just like the gathering and you know, with the three doors and, and I'm like, well, is it? And I went back and sure enough, he was dead on. Now, my younger son, who, while very versed in Star Wars, is not as versed, and he he had some interesting perspectives on this episode as well, and I'll probably touch on them as we go through, but he felt that this episode had some, I guess, some tension, and I guess I didn't see the tension in it because I, I kind of assumed that everybody was coming out of this one alive, but it kind of made me think that, you know, for the younger audience and maybe for the target audience, this could have been a rather intense episode. And I guess I kind of like to see that. Yeah, my son was in the same boat uh, with all the visions going on with Kanan and with the Inquisitor when he showed up, who I never noticed was so long toothed until this episode. But when the lightsaber battle went down and there was that moment where, you know, you think that Kanan gets struck down. My son was, I mean, he totally stopped what he was doing and turned and looked at me and was like, did he just die? And of course I'm playing it up. Like I'd already seen it once. So I didn't want to spell it for him. I'm like, dude, I, I looks that way, huh? You know? But yeah, I mean, he was totally that his age group. I could see how watching that episode could be a lot more intense than, than mine or yours. Yeah. I think our age group, I mean, we grew up with the original trilogy so to us, you know, the dark side cave concept and the idea of these force visions being part of Jedi trials, we just kind of take it for granted. You know, as soon as he goes in the cave and we see Kanan run by, you know, impatiently, we're like, oh, well, obviously this must be part of a vision or something. And from then on, pretty much the entire thing, we're like, yeah, some intense stuff is going to happen. Of course it is, because it's a vision. But if you don't have that background that has you take that for granted, like if your introduction to Star Wars was mostly stuff like the Clone Wars or the prequels, you're probably not going to carry in that as your mindset when you see it, especially for the younger members of the audience. So I can imagine really for anyone who got into Star Wars, I guess, starting in about the late 90s forward, this probably was a more intense episode in terms of the peril than it was for those earlier. Those who got into Star Wars earlier, I think it was a much more intense episode emotionally in this case. Well, in any case, this episode really does deal with Ezra taking his next step toward becoming a Jedi. One thing that they really kind of hit on in the beginning of this episode, as I mentioned, pulling from the last episode, is Ezra had a brush with the dark side, and he needs to almost reground himself and pick his direction. And I think we see that, even though they don't directly reference it through this episode, we see that there is not only so much fear in Ezra, there's a lot of anger there too. And it really could make him open to the dark side. So I, I really did like seeing this picture into Ezra's psyche. The episode opens up with Kanan looking for Ezra, and Ezra is nowhere to be found. And Baron, man, I don't know how you're going to take this. It turns out that Ezra was off with Sabine. Was he? I because I never really got that. I watched the the episode a couple times, but I, he I flat never... out says it. He says he yeah. was with Sabine, and he has I, that grin on his face. Well, even have... in the vision, there's that moment where Sabine talks about him being young, and I was telling my son that I'm like, she's only a year older than him. Like, I love the subconsciousness at play there. Yeah, I, I don't know if I if I uh, dislike that. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, you have to take your little brother places all the time. I still don't think it's going to happen between him and Sabine. He's just setting himself up for failure. But for some reason, that didn't click where it was. And I even had in my notes, like, where was he? But uh, I like the fact that Kanan is trying to continue his Jedi training and trying to get answers solved that he has about his own abilities, you know, by bringing 
Ezra to the Jedi Temple. Why didn't he just tell Ezra that the Jedi Temple was on Lothal? You know, why did he have to test him? Yeah. You know, this episode brings a lot of questions up, you know, and I'm sure, Nathan, we're going to get into it. But like, I didn't know that's how you found Jedi Temples was you just (laughs) kind of meditated for them. You know what I mean? And and he kind of explains, uh, Kanan kind of explains that a lot of the Jedi Temples were destroyed, you know, were sought out and destroyed. And I assume that was Darth Vader, you know, going about that. He can't find some on Lethal. I mean, I just don't understand that's how you find Jedi Temples now. Okay, first of all, dealing with your first point, why did he make Ezra find the temple? Well, I mean, we know Kanan found it through the Holocron, but he made Ezra kind of use his connection to the Force. That makes perfect sense to me, because he's trying to kind of, I guess, check Ezra's connection to the Force. Maybe you can only find a Jedi temple by using the light side. Maybe it's not a dark side talent, so to speak, or maybe the dark side can't connect the same way. So that made sense to me. It's also kind of, you know, most teachers will ask their students to recite information or or figure out information while it could just be as easily looked up in a book. It's a way of testing. So that that didn't have a problem. I didn't have a problem with that. I agree. I mean, this was just one of those things. It seems like from the standpoint of a teacher, you would need to, you always want to push their boundaries. The The line a lot of times with teachers is that uh, you know what the student can do. If you really want to push them and get them to learn, what you do is you set the bar for what you want them to do in the next assignment, the next test, the next whatever, a little bit beyond where they are. So that every time it's not just, well, they're just doing it because they already know how to do it and they're good to go. There's enough of a challenge to it that it takes them to that next step. And in a lot of ways, that's sort of what Ezra's journey has to be here. He doesn't have traditional Jedi training, a traditional Jedi temple. It's all got to be learning through experience. So you have to constantly give him moments in which, yeah, Kanan could just give him the quick and easy path and just do it for him. But he's got to be able to find it. I found that kind of interesting, you know, the beginning of that vision when it is Kanan being supposedly frustrated and impatient and zipping on by. And to me, that was sort of that moment of, oh, well, it's obviously got to be a vision because even Kanan would know that's not what you do as a teacher. You don't just say, okay, my student isn't learning fast enough or doing what he's supposed to be doing fast enough. I'm just going to do it for them. You know, that's the teaching to the test, so to speak. No, you have to step up and sometimes let them have the freedom to fail in the process of exploring what they can or cannot do. I don't know that it's necessarily something we see a whole lot within the Legends continuity, but even then there were aspects of the idea that, you know, Jedi training is partly based on intuition, partly based on feeling where the Force is guiding you. It certainly makes sense to me that if you're going to find a Jedi Temple, wherever it is that it's going to be the next part in your Jedi journey, it would make sense for that to be where you're going within this new canon and all. I mean, we had... The children, the younglings in that arc back in Season 5 of The Clone Wars, who used the Force to find their way through the icy tunnels and whatnot as part of their adventure, uh, didn't seem out of place to me at all. Although, I did find it kind of funny that, of course, Kanan already knew where it was thanks to the Holocron, although it begs the question of the inconsistency of, I can guide us there using the Force. I can't give you the coordinates, but I can guide us. And when they finally get there, Kanan's like, yeah, autopilot off. You already knew. So does that mean that the entire time they were flying there when Ezra was supposedly guiding him, Kanan was pretending to press buttons? 
to take them where they were going, or did he just sit back and let the autopilot take it, and Ezra was too dumb to realize that as he's giving directions, Kanan's not doing anything? A cool little moment for them, but it doesn't make a lot of logical sense between the cuts in the scene. I like, I, I, I understand where you guys are coming from. Uh, you know, it kind of makes more sense like that about how the teachers have to teach, basically. And I, But I, one of the facts that I do like is that every challenge that Ezra has been set, put in front of him, he has accomplished. You know, he has never really failed on any of the tests, these Jedi tests. And that's one thing I like about the character, about him, as you said, Nathan, growing and taking the next step to become a Jedi. See, I found the word temple difficult to swallow because once they got there, it didn't feel like a temple. I mean, a Jedi test, yeah, a, a, a location where we have rituals or something like that. But I don't know. I had a hard time seeing it as a as a temple as what I'm used to seeing as a Jedi temple, uh, especially with the masters staying behind while the apprentices went down inside and they didn't make it back. So these guys just stayed there and died. That was really odd to be a temple. <laughs> but... I did think about the fact that it took the two of them to lift the tower out of the ground. And I was thinking, you know, the Inquisitors seem to all travel in single file, you know, one of them at a time. Vader's always one by himself. There's never seems to be two Force users at any one time. So that base seems to have a, a strong, I don't know, probability that it may not have ever been found by the Empire. Or if it was, there was nothing they could do about it. And they just left it alone. I mean, I like the fact that the show actually addressed why they don't use it as a base later. But I did think at the same time, there were some aspects of the temple that I really enjoyed. But the fact they kept calling it a temple, it did not, to me, feel like what I've always perceived a Jedi temple to be. It definitely seemed more like like you guys were saying, the Clone Wars the on the cave, uh, you know, those kind of things when they go to those places to find their lightsaber crystals. And it's that next step in the journey of the path to being the Jedi. Hence, it's a great title for the episode. But I didn't think that was a Jedi temple at all. I mean, not in the traditional sense. I think that's because we've sort of come to expect, thanks to so many years of books and comics and everything, and even to a degree the way it's presented within the Clone Wars and whatnot for the Coruscant Temple, that when we think temple, we think what the EU at one point called a praxium, right? That it's a Jedi teaching location. But a temple in general, throughout history, temples have been anything from places where you gather for worship in a big way to simply buildings that you only go to every great once in a while for rituals, which is exactly the description that you gave there. So I think it's just another of those unlearning what we have learned. A Jedi temple, especially in an era in which there is not much of a Jedi order, it doesn't necessarily have to be a school, essentially, that a temple can be what it is to us, a temple. And well, that's a hardcore this. temple, though. Like, the masters <laughs> never come back. Like, oh, man, I told Jin not to take Pablo. He doesn't know what he's doing. You should have went with Obi-Wan. And I thought Matt, I thought Jedi was supposed to let go of attachments, too. You know, if a guy doesn't come back, then you, know, you just go get another one. You, know, you, you guys are missing it. it. It takes two people to get in. It also takes two people to get out. If the, if the Padawan doesn't come back, they're stuck. <laughs> yeah. You know, we learn things about Jedi temples in this, in this episode. We also learn things about holocrons, like... I thought holocrons had one specific purpose. I didn't know. First of all, we understand now that holocrons have to be opened by the Force or used by a Force user. And during the Legends, that wasn't necessarily true. You didn't have to be a Force Jedi or a Sith to use a holocron. There were levels uh, to them on, in Legends. Right. So now a holocron is basically you only need one to have all types of knowledge inside of a holocron, right? You can find these Jedi temples. It's the you Jedi can, Internet. 
Yeah, it's the Jedi. It's the Jedi internet. internet. About the holocron. My thought while watching this episode is maybe the holocron is kind of like our smartphones are now that they take in data that's sent out because remember we see Obi-Wan's message there. So maybe that received something at some point and maybe it receives other information. I mean, for all we know, there could be something in that temple slash outpost that sends out information when the holocron's in proximity to it. Holocrons have never been about just one type of information. It's you, holocrons in the legends continuity, where they got the idea from, were always built around the idea of multiple types of information. It's just that they might have one holographic gatekeeper to go with each one. But even then, there were some that had different gatekeepers for different eras and different types of information. A holocron can control and contain just about anything. The only thing so far we've seen slightly inconsistent with holocrons throughout this new continuity and all is that we did have the one instance where you needed a kyber crystal to unlock information on one that was theoretically encrypted, which had the map information of where you find all those children of the Jedi or children of the Force, whereas in this case it's a holocron that's much more traditional where it's just you open it and activate it with the Force, and that's it. You don't need a kyber crystal to do anything with it, unless we assume that he already has a kyber crystal that's already inside the holocron we've just never seen. Now, talking about... Ezra's abilities. Something happened during this episode that I I don't know maybe if I'm reading too much into it. As Ezra and Kanan are in the Phantom going off, Kanan asks Ezra to to tap into the Force to, to find the temple. As he does that, they flash to outside the Phantom and a bunch of loath cats kind of stick up their heads like, you know, something startled them. Is Ezra still tapped into the you know, the, the force to the point where he's able to to affect life around him. I, I don't know if I'm, again, reading too much into it, but that's what occurred to me. Wow. that That's actually pretty deep. I mean, on, on one level, that could easily be the case. Uh, I mean, from the legend side of things, Jason Solo had abilities like that that responded very much to nature. Nature responded to him and his abilities. So, you know, to have him probing out and have the cat respond back to it, I mean, for all we know, the cat could, too, have an element of his you know, natural abilities that touches the Force, and that could have been what the cat was feeling, or it could have been just the probing of Ezra, and it felt like, like a brush or something on the fur. That's pretty cool. So they get to the temple, or the giant rock in the ground, and Kanan tells Ezra to go out and find the entrance. You know, one thing that I think we've, we're seeing lately, even though Ezra didn't... I don't know, make his appointment with Kanan. He's definitely acting like more of the traditional Padawan. He's not questioning as much. Back when they were on the ghost and Kanan told him to go prep the Phantom, Ezra's response was, yes, master. Now he's not complaining, going, oh my God, how am I going to do this? He, he runs off and does it right away. And he's obeying his master. He's treating him more like We've seen Padawans treat their masters. He, he, may, he may be kind of falling into this role a little bit more. And while he asks for a, a hint, he, he accepts it, and then they, they, they're able to move on. It seems like they, their relationship is growing. Well, I think, you know, seeing your master being confronted by the Inquisitor, I think that's enough right there to make you snap into line real quick. I, and I like the way that it's progressed for the characters. It makes me wonder if... And this is it's it's interesting the dynamic that we have going here. Because what we've got with Kanan 
is someone who believes in Ezra. He believes in Ezra's abilities, right? He makes the comment about how, you know, he's not sure if he can train Ezra to be a Jedi, not because of Ezra or his abilities, but because of who Kanan is. His own time essentially away from the Force, shunning the Force as we saw back in A New Dawn as this continuity is built up, has caused him to sort of doubt himself, but he believes in Ezra. But the reverse is also true. When Ezra's inside the temple, Ezra is talking about how, you know, he has all these things to him. He, he mentions to Kanan about how he wants to be the Jedi that Kanan sees in him, but he doesn't always see in himself. But when he's in the temple, he's defending Kanan's ability to teach. Kanan is a good teacher, a great teacher, and so forth. It's interesting that really, Miss Hera seems to believe in both of them, as we see at the beginning. But these two fundamental characters that are part of this connected Master Padawan relationship, they both have issues where they're down on themselves and yet have faith in each other. And that, in a sense, I think is what we're seeing building here. It's why you see Kanan when he gets angry about, you know, it's not just about that blah, 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 as he says kind of near the beginning. He has to stop himself. He has to control his own impatience, and he's learning to do that more, whereas in Ezra's case... He has to learn to follow instructions more. He says, you know, you know how I grew up. I'm not used to all these rules, but he's still trying. They're sort of overcoming their own self-worth issues or self-perception issues by being lifted up by how they feel about the other person and how they respect them when the other person wouldn't even think the same way about themselves. It's a very cool dynamic they got going on and very subtle. They don't call it out, but you see it enough that it's there. Nathan, you're in education as I am. And you know this, that sometimes a difficult student or a student from a, a challenging background, it takes time to find the stride with the teacher. And when they finally get to that connection, it's like they've been together for years, but it, it doesn't always happen very easily and it doesn't always happen very quickly. This is kind of what I'm seeing with these two. Oh, yeah. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that doesn't always necessarily happen, period. I think that's where... You know, so for me as an educator, you know, watching this, I'd, I'd say parents probably too, or step parents, especially watching this, uh, would have a very different perspective of sort of seeing how this relationship is growing and hoping that it is going to become strong and that their own frustrations with themselves isn't going to drive them apart at some point, as it almost has at different points in different scenes in earlier episodes. Here's another thought for you guys. It was actually proposed by my daughter, and it's something that I never considered, but it makes a lot of sense. When you think about the level of training that Kanan has had in preparing him to be a Jedi and to pass on the Jedi teaching, don't you think Kanan has had far more exposure, experience, and training that prepares him to do that than, let's say, Luke had? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Luke had no training at all. I mean, he had some training on Dagobah with Yoda, which you could consider, you know... A year with Kanan and, you know, could be the equivalence of two weeks with Yoda. So you kind of have to put in perspective there. But definitely Kanan is not all the way trained. So he's going to have a lot more questions, uh, maybe the same amount of questions or maybe more questions than Luke. You know, who knows how much information Luke discovered on his own and how much Obi-Wan taught him. I mean, we know what we saw in the movies, but there could have been other times that they spoke. But I, I absolutely agree with you. And Luke seems a little bit more sure of himself and a little bit more confident in his teachings. All the way from the, the first episode to the second episode, he seems more confident than Kanan ever has so far. Well, here's my thought. 
I always felt that Luke was he was on a specific path. You know, he he got the he got the accelerated courses and it was more he was trained in the martial skills. He was trained to to fight, to take down Vader and the Emperor. That was what he his goal, what his intent was. And maybe in episode 7 we'll find out more about, you know, how he carried on the Jedi order. But I mean Kanan was trained since he was probably taken from his parents. He'd been exposed to the Jedi teaching and the Jedi Order from birth. And even though he walked away from it for a while, he still has much more of it ingrained in him. And I think, you know, what he knows and the knowledge he has far exceeds what Luke left Yoda with. So, you know, I, I just, when my daughter brought that up, I found it very insightful because I hadn't really thought about it before. Well, in a sense, I mean, think of think of Kanan kind of as your first-year teacher. They've got the training because they've seen it in action, but we all know there's a huge difference between seeing something in action or learning something in, in principle than doing something actually in practice. So he knows kind of how Yoda taught. He knows how Depabilaba, his master, had taught. Now he's trying to figure out a way to use that and sort of get inside their heads. What must have they been thinking when they taught me this or tried to teach me this, you know, do or do not, there is no try. He didn't get it until he really sat down and thought about it in recent episodes here. Whereas Luke, in a lot of ways, is sort of like the student teacher. You know, he's just kind of thrown in there. He's still in the middle of his training, and yet he's going to have to come in there and teach. Although, two things pop up coming out of this that I found very interesting questions thinking about this episode in relation to the original trilogy and whatnot. One, who says that Luke ever trains any new Jedi anymore. Sure, in the Legends continuity he did, we know nothing about Luke actually training anyone, even someone like Leia, in this new continuity. As far as we know, we could see Episode 7 and find that Luke just, you know, went into hiding or became a hermit like Obi-Wan after Return of the Jedi, because he maybe he didn't trust himself to train people. We don't know as far as that goes yet. Um, but also, especially because we're going to see that Yoda is in the episode, assuming that it's not some kind of thing where the temple has some kind of remnant of Yoda talking to them, very much like the Sith illusion of Darth Bane or something, and this really is supposedly Yoda who couldn't see him before, but can see them now, as he says, if this really is Yoda that talks to them here, then what are we to make of Return of the Jedi when gone I am, the last of the Jedi will you be? Does that not assume, because this episode is going to show us that yes, Yoda knows about Kanan, and about Ezra, is that essentially going to be a contradiction we're going to see? Or a point of view kind of thing, telling Luke what he needs to hear? Or are we dealing with a situation in which Yoda, by definition in Return of the Jedi, has managed to confirm that by the time Return of the Jedi comes around, Kanan and Ezra are dead, gone, or otherwise? They don't necessarily need to be dead. When the last of the Jedi, well, maybe Ezra never made it to Jedi, and Kanan was never really you know, formally accepted as a Jedi. Luke is a Jedi because Yoda tells him what his last trial has to be. Maybe there's just no more Padawans left to be trained. And that's what he means. So I don't think it's going to be a contradiction. As far as, you know, you bring up the point about Yoda being mm -hmm. at the temple and how he couldn't see before, but he can see now. Didn't you guys get a callback to when he met those Force witches? Or now we know it was one Force witch. When they would disappear or guide him, they were those little bite balls of light as well. And that's exactly what Yoda is. So he actually did learn a Jedi technique from those from that Force Witch and from the Clone Wars episode. 
Well, that assumes that that was actually Yoda physically there. I mean, Yoda could have been, you know, using the force itself as a tool to be the instrument and cause the lights to come forth and could have been just sitting at Dagobah the whole time, you know, meditating it all. Oh, yeah. I I was kind of thinking that was what he meant when he said, you know, now I can see you about Kanan, like Kanan's ability starting to shine through, which at the same time kind of made me kind of fearful for Kanan because it's like, okay, if Yoda's able to detect him, is there any level of this that Vader might be able to pick up on? Thinking of what Jonathan was just saying this episode about the cats picking up on that stuff. It's like, okay, if something like that was actually an intended effect, you know, I mean, these guys are making waves in the force if that's <laughs> actually Yoda. But it could also be just the manifestation of that place because the voice of Yoda said, you brought me here. So it could just be what Kanan brought in. Because Kanan seemed to have an idea of what was going on from the start. When they showed up at the shuttle and he tells Ezra to go walk around, he sits down like he knows Ezra's not going anywhere far. That he knows this is the actual entrance and he knows the two of them are the ones going in. And then, you know, and he, he just chills at that other spot with the dead bodies and that's when Yoda comes to him. And it's like, I don't know, it seems like there's an element of that, that, that he knows more of what's going on because of that holocron, even though he himself has lack of faith in his own abilities. I mean, that, that was what was cool was watching both of them take that journey. I think definitely Yoda was on Dagobah meditating, but I think he was able to use what he learned from those Jedi priestesses to make his conscience there or whatever it was for him able to guide Ezra. I really think that this was a callback to that Clone Wars episode, one of those lost missions. Well, I hope so, because it immediately made me think of the fact that Yoda could come to Luke in the next episode. I was like, oh, please, please let that be the reason why they slipped that into the last season. As far as the idea of, you know, couldn't sense him before, now he can. That could be Kanan opening himself back up to the Force and such, like we saw him finally start to do in Spark of Rebellion, after we know he didn't for many years, thanks to stuff like uh, A New Dawn. Could also be something as simple as, since he's in a Jedi temple at that point, that that sort of amplifies his presence in the Force and would allow Yoda to be able to speak to him while meditating telepathically. However, I do find it interesting that Yoda here appears as a voice, and Frank Oz's voice, which is really, really cool, although when we get a little bit more into the whole Frank Oz thing later, there's a, a, a precedent aspect of this that I'm concerned about. The fact that he's there as a voice, and we get the little disembodied glowy ball things for Ezra to follow and whatnot, it's very much like, as Barrett was saying, what we saw back in the Lost Missions. But at the time we saw that in the Lost Missions, remember this was Qui-Gon at that point guiding Yoda. We had the little light ball things. And we had a disembodied voice of Qui-Gon, but Qui-Gon never shows up as a Force ghost. So it makes me wonder if, I mean, we can go back into the whole contradiction of what, did Qui-Gon know how to teach Yoda, or was his training incomplete, and the priestesses were the ones who had to teach him, though why did they have him get assigned Qui-Gon to teach, and all that contradictory stuff from the Lost Missions. But it's interesting here that Yoda shows up in that form not as a Force ghost, which makes me think that over time, if this is meant to be essentially the real Yoda... Maybe he's learning what he needs to learn about retaining his essence and all that stuff, being trained by Qui-Gon and such. But even now, he hasn't reached that point where he's got the ability to appear as a Force ghost or, you know, because he's not dead, he just simply can't appear as a Force ghost, can't send like an astral projection type thing. And that this is a way of saying, look, this is a step in Yoda's development, that he is now to Qui-Gon's level. And by the time we get to the end of Return of the Jedi, he will finally be at... You know, the Obi-Wan level where he'll be able to retain his essence and that sort of thing. It's interesting that we may have just gotten some character development for Yoda without this episode being a Yoda-focused episode. It's very easy to have that just slip on by. Mm-hmm. 
Well, getting back to the episode, Kanan sends Ezra off essentially into the Lothal version of the dark cave on Dagobah, and Ezra faces his fears. First, he faces the Inquisitor and losing Kanan, losing his master. Then he faces being rejected by his, what he's coming to, I guess, view as his friends or family. And then lastly, being abandoned again. And then when he's able to build the resolve that, you know what, he's been abandoned before and he's able to get through it, uh, he can do it again. You know, dealing with, I guess, the ultimate evil in his mind, in his experience thus far, the Inquisitor. And he is able to overcome it. I thought, you know, looking again at the sort of the psychological development, that this was a real, very, very tight way of dealing with it. I agree with you on that level. The one aspect about the whole vision with the Inquisitor when he showed up that really kind of bothered me was when his lightsaber did its little twirly device. Like, he's pressed his uh, saber up against Kanan's and they're kind of locked in the saber combat position. And then that ring dropped down and I'm like, okay, this is going to be cool. The other blade ignites. I'm like, yeah, this is cool. And then it started spinning and it, it I, that stopped me because I was just like, wait, if that starts moving, doesn't that mean Kanan's going to strike him and all that? I mean, I had to literally remind myself, wait, this is just a vision. Although at that point, you know, my son, he didn't think that. So my son's looking at it too. And he's just like, well, how come they weren't holding that anymore? And I'm, and I'm like, Try not to spoil it to him. And then, of course, then he gets stabbed and my son got all latched onto that. But there was that moment when that lightsaber blade started spinning. And I was like, wait, the top blade's locked in combat. How are you able to just start spinning that thing all fast like that? Like, I don't know. Did anyone else have an issue with that? I just figured it shoved Kanan's blade out of line. And as Kanan brought it back up, the second, the second spinning blade hit it. Yeah, it, seemed like, it didn't seem too you know, far-fetched to me. Maybe his blade would have moved a little bit. But, I mean, if that thing's going to spin very, very quickly, I mean, it could either have been a matter of spinning... You know, counterclockwise or clockwise, and that's going to have a different effect on how uh, the blade is being held by Kanan. I do agree with Jonathan, though. This was a very well-done way of dealing with the psychological aspects of this. Because a lot of times, especially in shows geared at kids, they have to beat you over the head with the lesson or what it is you're seeing. I mean, a lot of times, even the Clone Wars did that. You know, here, here's this story point. We're going to beat you over the head, kind of the way I tend to talk in circles. But here... Not so much. I mean, we got a chance to see his fear about the death of Kanan and being left alone in that sense, abandoned by his master or uh, because his master had died. Uh, we get the cool moment there with the clash between the Inquisitor and Kanan. We don't have to be told, oh, you're going to be alone without your master, blah, blah, blah. We see it and we see uh, Ezra's reactions to it. Then we wind up seeing him with the crew. You don't have to see him talk about, you know, being alone. Instead... We get these very specific ways in which the individual members of the crew reject him that are in perfect keeping with the interactions he's had with them. Zeb, you know, saying it's nothing personal, but just, you know, that he wants his bunk back, which harkens back to previous episodes. Hera, uh, as opposed to being the one seen more like the stable mom in this case that believes in him, seeing him just as being useful when there was a question early on, you know, how could he apply himself to these different missions of theirs. And then Sabine, the one he's got a thing for, looking at him just as a kid and having pity on him instead of an interest or looking at him like family or an interest or whatever. Very, very personally designed. And then, of course, you got the fact that he is dealing with the idea of being alone. Um, he had already mentioned his background earlier in the episode, so we got a nice connection there. 
he's able to stand up against it, like we saw with him dealing with the emotional aspect of what happened with his parents back in the last two episodes, and allows him to finally overcome all of this. But at no point are they bashing you over the head over and over again with, you see, this is what he's doing, this is what he's thinking, this is what he's feeling, this is why this is a big deal. It's handled much more like the Dark Side Cave in The Empire Strikes Back. You see what's happening. And it makes sense in terms of character development and the psychology, but they're not going to flat out spell out for you what you're seeing. You as the audience have to take in everything and understand it on your own psychological level. And that is something I'm not sure Clone Wars would have done. This seems to be a more mature approach to it than a lot of what we've got in the last you know, five to ten years of Star Wars on film. It's more subtle. What's interesting is that while Ezra is facing his fears, we also have Kanan facing his own fears. And the fact that he is unsure if he's, as was stated earlier, he's unsure whether he is good enough or a proficient enough teacher to bring Ezra to full Jedi-hood, you know, to be what Ezra needs. And having seen the past few episodes and Kanan's teaching methods, I think that's a, you know, a warranted fear. Well, especially knowing what we know from A New Dawn. I mean, you know, there's definitely that element of Kanan was almost a pirate, you know, at one point, a smuggler at another time. And, and you know, he, he's been on the shady side of things. And I, I like the fact that he's got a moral compass that's strong enough that, that he's questioning the fact of, am I responsible enough to be training this boy? Uh, you know, and it brings it around that question that Nathan points out, you know, is of especially if this is actually Yoda and Yoda knows of him is, you know, what eventually happens to them that they're not considered you know jedi enough i mean it it also raises the other angle of it of what exactly is so special about luke aside from him being the chosen one's son uh you know i mean what all comes from being that i mean because otherwise you've got two new hopes sitting right here i mean (laughs) why were we always hedging (laughs) our bet on luke they have to be dead they're dead they're gone well, you know, the idea, uh, Mark brings up A New Dawn, and I brought up A New Dawn earlier. I think even Jonathan brought up A New Dawn as well, which begs this sort of question of, okay, we watch this episode, and as those of us who've been following it, and yes, A New Dawn counts, folks. The story group's new canon they're developing, the books, the comics, the TV shows, the movies, all equally valid for the first time in Star Wars. So yes, A New Dawn matters here. We have him saying, you know, uh, I'm not sure if I can do this because of, you know, what I've done, because of who I am. I won't let him become lost like I was. We have that background knowledge on it for those who have read A New Dawn to know what he had done before, how he kind of almost became a pirate, how he was just using people and not forming those attachments, sort of a twisted version of the Jedi path, and how he basically had shunned the Force and said, you know, the Force, I want nothing to do with it. It wants nothing to do with me. Screw it. I'm wondering, for those who would have watched this episode uh, without having read A New Dawn, just what people would be thinking is part of Kanan's past that he might be referring to, because it doesn't seem like to us that, is reading, that have read A New Dawn that it's like he's referring back to something horrible, like you know, after being left alone after Order 66, he didn't become a darksider and have to come back or something like that that we know of. But it begs that question of if someone hasn't read A New Dawn and they're watching this and hearing him say stuff like that, what must people be thinking is somewhere hidden in Kanan's background? Barrett, have you read A New Dawn? No, no, I have not. That's why, you know, that's why I've had questions here when they would say things like, you know, you'd find out that that it's actually Hera's ship. And some of the things you've said about how Kanan, which he alludes to here about who he is, 
and how he kind of stepped away, I guess, from the from the Jedi way, the Jedi path. And those are the things that you would know unless you read A New Dawn. So, you know, I like to stay ignorant. Bliss is ignorance. And I like to ask these questions here among among us friends and find out uh, what's what sometimes. Well, even Ezra's subconscious, his outlook of Hera is is another one of those that you could liken back to the book because she did see Kanan as like a, a, an element that she could use a tool. He had his usefulness, and it wasn't until he became just useful enough that she actually seen him as any kind of potential to be looked at. Before that, she scoffed and turned away almost every opportunity she had. She, you know, I mean, he had to prove he was useful, <laughs> so it was kind of cool too. There's another nod. I feel, to A New Dawn in this episode. And take it for what you will. When the the vision of the Inquisitor kills the vision of Kanan, and the, the Inquisitor goes, oh, Kanan is what he was calling himself. Almost acknowledging that that's not his name, or not, not his original name. Yeah, that was a great one, too. I, I fist-pumped at that. There was there was that and and when Ezra is having that moment where he's talking about his own doubts and stuff and coming to grips with him, you know, he's like afraid of letting my master down. Absolutely, like there was Nathan had brought brought it up earlier. I mean, there were moments on my second and third watch of this that I was getting really emotional when they those moments hit and the voice acting and stuff. I mean, they were just definitely nailing it. And speaking of voice acting, I think now is a good time to talk about welcoming Frank Oz back into the fold. What did you guys think of this? Because I'll tell you, I was pleased to see Frank Oz, and I think he, or hear Frank Oz, I was really impressed with the voice acting that he did for this part, but I have to tell you, part of me was like, but why didn't we use Tom Kane? That was something that jumped out at me when dealing with this. For me, a lot of times, when I'm reading Star Wars books, I'm hearing the voices in my mind. And by the time we got done with Clone Wars, you know, if I read something with Anakin, I hear Matt Lanter. I don't hear Hayden Christensen or Matt Lucas from the Tartakovsky series. I'm hearing Matt Lanter. And it was awesome to see or hear, as you said, Frank Oz reprise the role. It sounds terrific, very much, of course, like his portrayal back in the live action films. It is interesting they didn't choose Tom Kane, though, because we've had this weird pattern with Star Wars animation, right? We had the Clone Wars film. Christopher Lee playing Dooku, and then he's gone, Corey Burton is in. Uh, We had B.J. Hughes do that horrid, horrid version of Jar Jar, making Jar Jar even worse, if that can be imagined. And then, of course, they brought Ahmed Best back in to finally give the character sort of that oomph that it needed to match the films and actually, you know, kind of have the cadence that it needed. It seems as though they love the idea of trying to bring in voice actors who are actually the film actors that we heard, Pernilla August uh, at one point as Shmi, Liam Neeson coming back as Qui-Gon, uh, Christopher Lee as Dooku at least at first, Ahmed Best as Jar Jar, and in this series, James Thurl Jones coming in and doing the voice of Vader. But there's a part of me that sits back and says, well, but what happens if later they want to use this character again? Are they going to be able to get that actor again, or are they going to fall back on a voice actor, either from the Clone Wars or elsewhere, like with Vader, maybe, you know, Vader from the Force Unleashed or something, is it going to be an inconsistency that jars us like B.J. Hughes and Ahmed Best did, or is it going to be something that feels more continuous anyway, like Christopher Lee and Corey Burton not seeming all that different? It's one of those things that's really awesome to see when they do it, but it begs the question of 
what kind of precedent is being set and what does this bode for if they decide to use these characters in a bigger way later? Is Frank Oz, does his schedule pretty busy? I mean, why can't they use Frank Oz? Is he like Madonna and he throws up his nose? <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't they be able to use Frank Oz anymore? Frank Oz is a director in his own right. And he is busy. I mean, he does do voice work for other things. I mean, anytime there's a Muppet thing, you know, chances are he's going to be involved. And I think at one point he even said that, you know, he had no interest or intention of ever doing a Star Wars project again. I think this was about the time the Clone Wars was coming out. And I, 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 I think now, don't hold me to this, guys. But I think I heard an interview with him where he was like, oh, they're they're doing a Clone Wars? Oh, well, good luck to him. I want no part of it. Well, it's like, you know, we, we always make the joke about Anthony Daniels will play C-3PO in anything. But it's simply because he is the exception to the rule. He always comes back as C-3PO. But by and large, the folks who did the characters or played the characters on film, they have their own careers. They have their own things going on. They generally don't jump into this field. We, we've made the comment before about Freddie Prince Jr. Sometimes his performance seems like it's more nuanced because this is somebody who is a film actor, not a voice actor, so maybe his approach is different. What we get generally are people from the voice acting, not the film acting field. There seems to be a clear division or a relatively clear division of that in creative circles in Hollywood and beyond. See, I'd like to think of it as, you know, when we saw jjt playing obi-wan we had a representation of obi-wan in a form uh yoda's not actually in physical in this beyond the lights showing up and that's not a classic well hey there's yoda kind of thing so when there, there's no body so go with the classic film version of yoda we're, we're moving that direction towards films eventually we're going to have a whole cinematic aspect of this going from here on forward so it kind of was Interesting that they went that direction and kept it with the live actor voice versus the animated version, which is what they did with Obi-Wan. So you've got like that tie into both in that regard. And it draws to mind, actually, the film version of Yoda more so than the Clone Wars version. And that's what I like. That's it. When you heard Frank Oz's voice as Yoda, it brought you back into the original trilogy. And I think that was the whole reason for doing that. And I think using JTT for Obi-Wan at first it was meant to draw you back to the clone wars so i think that what they're doing over there is they're really putting a lot of thought into every move they make you know what is going to be good for the show what's going to be good for star wars and man i hate to say it but it seems when george lucas has not no control over it it's like star wars is coming back in a big way the way they're telling these stories and the way they're using the characters oh you just provided the perfect transition to something I wanted to bring up, saying it seems like they're really planning this stuff out. The the thing that has caused some people to dislike this episode and the fact that Yoda is in it is because we don't get a clear explanation of what's going on with Yoda. How is he able to do this? Is this part of what's going on with the temple itself and the force echo of Yoda or something? Is it actually Yoda telepathically reaching out? Uh, how is he able to speak to them and have this conversation? How does it relate to Return of the Jedi and Luke and everything. The answer they give in the episode so perfectly condenses down the approach of Filoni and company, though, a lot of times to Star Wars continuity and questions not being answered, that it deserves to be mentioned here. Because what does Yoda say? Be not concerned with how. 
That has completely been their approach. Oh, this character's here that wasn't here before. This character's alive who shouldn't be. And, oh, hey, uh, you know, Ahsoka just kind of goes off and disappears. Be not concerned with how. We wanted to do it for this episode. It's cool, so just shut up and enjoy it. And to us, watching this, I try to go into it with an open mind because it's a new continuity and everything. And I think it's pretty cool that Yoda showed up, although it seems a little bit odd. But it's cool that he's there, and who knows, you know, what Yoda can do as far as, you know, speaking out telepathically through the Force in this version of the saga. Who knows? Maybe he does this all the time, and maybe we'll see it more in the series. But those who walk into this, I think, with sort of a a locked-in perception that everything must have an answer and must have an answer now, which was me when dealing with the Legends continuity, I think Mark as well, Mm -hmm. are going to walk into this and say, how the heck is Yoda? having a part in all this. Why is he there? Screw you, Filoni. How dare you simply give us the answer, be not concerned with how. Because it sounds not just directed at Kanan, it sounds directed at the naysayers in fandom. Well, moving on, the episode kind of culminates with Yoda basically telling Ezra that despite his fear and anger, he still could be a Jedi. You know, we'll have to see where that goes. And then gives him a kyber crystal, which Ezra has no idea what it is, and shocks Kanan because he didn't expect that to happen as part of this trip. And using that kyber crystal, Ezra is able to create his lightsaber. And Nathan, I know you've been dying for this. Oh, yeah. Years ago, when doing a fan production, it was actually meant to be a sequel short story to... Prelude to Hope, and we were working on that fan film way back in the day, if anybody remembers that. And it eventually got reworked into a serial edition uh, audiobook type thing back in the day for my Chrono Radio podcast. Did a story that's now known as Everything Changes, was called Forgotten Nights, and it's got a lightsaber almost exactly like this. And I always thought it was such a cool concept. Why didn't they ever use this type of concept in something official out there it seems like such a no-brainer to it and sure enough completely independent of anything i've ever done these guys came up with that concept and i love it the thing about it though is i'm not sure how much we can get into it i love the fact that the lightsaber looks different and almost looks like those blaster type handle type things that you would see used uh, by uh, scott bernard and rand back in robotech you know those kind of odd shaped uh, guns that that uh, you hold and it almost looks like a saber type grip but of course this is a saber grip And you get that new cool sound for the lightsaber blade. But we don't get to see the other thing that makes it special, even though looking at it makes it kind of obvious. Like I said, it looks kind of like those blaster type things they used in Robotech, only this is a lightsaber. Is it going too far to talk about the other mode of this thing? Listeners, this is something that has been, it's been shown in toys. It's been shown in the visual guide. Just to let you know, we are issuing a spoiler warning. It has not been shown in the show, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, you may want to fast-forward about five minutes. Exactly, because it doesn't just look like it's a Robotech-style blaster, but it happens to be a lightsaber. It's both. It's a blaster, so that barrel-looking thing is a barrel. It's a blaster. And it's a lightsaber. How freaking awesome is that to see on screen? I love it. 
my son, when we were watching it, I was like, oh, he's got the blaster. My son's like, that's not a blaster. And I'm like, no, but it is. It is. He's like, but he didn't shoot it. I'm like, but trust me, it is, bud. It is. <laughs> well, one thing, though, about when right before he got that blaster, when Yoda, the voice of Yoda gave him that crystal, that was one of the coolest scenes in the whole episode besides him holding the blaster or, well, the lightsaber itself up. I mean, with this did its thing i was just like whoa what is going on and then that one star dropped down and he he did that classic like luke holding the lightsaber up as it came down into his hands for a moment and i don't know i just thought that was a really cool moment right before he, he assembled it and i like that the episode actually jumped forward and they they talked about that they're like he's been in there for weeks you know you're like oh okay i liked that too i liked that you know they, they did note that there was a time jump there but and maybe I'll be in the minority here, but Nathan, I'm not sure what I think of this lightsaber blaster combo concept. I think Kanan kind of calls it out. It's unusual. It's different. It's it, it's something that we haven't really seen before, and I'm not sure if I'm buying it or I'm not sure if I, you know I'm I'm into it per se. We'll have to wait and see how they use it. Because it seems a little ungainly to me, and I don't know, maybe I'm just a purist. I like my lightsabers and my lightsabers, and my blasters be my blasters. So, we'll have to wait and see. Although we do have, or very soon, uh, we will know that within this continuity and all, the power cell used in a lightsaber is essentially the same power cell as used in a blaster. Uh, the upcoming novel, Heir to the Jedi, doesn't spend much time on lightsabers, but spends a little while with... Luke talking about what he's learned and, and learning a little bit more about lightsabers, and they take the time to actually explain how one works, where the kyber crystal fits into it, and that sort of thing. So it makes sense, at least now within this continuity, that you could have something running off of one power pack that could be a blaster and a lightsaber, because in theory they essentially run off the same power source, which wasn't necessarily always the case when they talked about different designs of lightsabers in the old Legends continuity and all. My son liked it. You know, we watched this together, and he thought it was really cool that it was a blaster and a lightsaber. So regardless, it was a brilliant move for the toy manufacturing side of it. Because I don't think any child who's in, a boy child or girl child, who's into Star Wars would not want a blaster and a lightsaber. So when you think of it on that kind of level, it's brilliant. You're like, what, why didn't they think of that before? But it brings up a couple questions for me. Like, from what we know on how Jedis build lightsabers, they use the Force, correct? So they use the Force to put together the lightsaber and all the components. That's what Ezra did here? I well, don't that know. That was Legends. No. Well, no. no. That, that is canon now, thanks to Air. Yeah, Jedi. that's canon. But and I can't say that on the show. No, it's canon due to the uh, young Jedi arc in Clone Wars. True. So oh. it's canon. So I don't see, I didn't get the feeling that he did this that way. I got the feeling that he just put it together like he tinkered everything. So that's, yeah. this, that's how he built the lightsaber. My other question is, real quick, is that the kyber crystal. So the kyber crystals now are officially, they can unlock holocrons. They are response, They are the Jedi light crystals for lightsabers now. Is that confirmed for light side and dark side? And... The kyber crystal is, are we to assume, the crystal that they use for the Death Star as well? It looks like it because, right, Clone Wars' story group's canon, or new canon, whatever you want to call it, and we saw them unlock the holocron there. Kyber crystals are the lightsaber crystals we got from Clone Wars and this. 
you've got the uh, story reels for the Utapau arc, and then the earlier episode of Rebels where a giant kyber crystal is essentially, if we see the story reels, it's able to redirect energy in a massive form, and the Empire was trying to get it. So presumably, it's for the Death Star construction project. They don't say it flat out, but you... You know, what else would they really be using it for? It seems like that's the logical conclusion. So yeah, kyber crystals seem to be sort of, and anytime you need something to redirect energy in some form, it is a great way to do it. Although, I don't believe, just kind of based on reading ahead of stuff, that necessarily a kyber crystal has to be in every piece of a lightsaber. Like, you wouldn't necessarily need three or four kyber crystals to make a lightsaber. It looks more like you get the one... And any other crystals involved are just like lenses, little like wafers of some other kind of crystal. But the kyber crystal is essentially at the heart of it. And yes, in theory, thanks to Young Jedi and other stuff, we should be seeing him use the Force to do it. But we also, I mean, we've got to kind of unlearn what we've learned. Traditionally, you look at the Legends continuity, a lot of time it was, hey, you go find the parts, and that makes a big deal about how you put it together. Like Tanelka going and getting a Rancor tooth to make her hilt. Whereas in this case, it's much more of sort of a family effort, right? I love the fact that the other members of the crew all applied a little bit to it. Kanan had some pieces he got over the years. Hera provided some tech. Uh, Sabine provided some tech and so forth. There's just little bits and pieces here and there that between the kyber crystal he got as part of his Jedi training and pieces donated by this thing that to him is becoming his family that's how he's able to bring it all together. He probably used the Force. He almost had to have used the Force, and we would have seen it you know, as something maybe happening off screen. But to me, the more important part is not did he use the Force or not, but this was something that he brought together because of this new family of his. That, to me, is very symbolic in the birth of this new lightsaber. Well, see, I was with Baron. I didn't think he used the Force either. I thought he tinkered and, and created it. I thought in a lot of ways that the way he built the lightsaber could even be inspired by the Inquisitor. Because seeing what the Inquisitor has had ah. compared to, you know, what Kanan has, he's got an obvious idea that, well, hey, you know, this Inquisitor is somebody not to be messed with. And there were epi- points in the episode where he was talking about, you know, power and stuff. And the voice of Yoda was like, oh, revenge. Is that what your master's taught you? You know, things like that. Uh, but I did think it was kind of cool, though, when it was a kyber crystal to find out that, you know, uh, a Jedi can have a holocron. Uh, and to use the force, you can access a part of it. And then to be able to take your crystal out of your lightsaber and put it in there, you could, you could possibly access other parts as well. It's kind of like cool to have like a secret key. It's like, you know, a force user could get a hold of your holocron, but if they're not a true Jedi and don't have a lightsaber as well, then they couldn't access all the secrets. Like there's still layers to a holocron because in Legends, the holocron was like the dying art. Not many people knew about how to make them anymore and things like that. But in canon, they seem to be very much a technology that's still being used today or is about to be dying off. One last question for Jonathan. I look at this design of the lightsaber. You look at the Inquisitor, as Mark referred to there, the spinning lightsaber, double-bladed thing. It's not just double-bladed. It spins like Grievous would have used it. And now we do have the lightsaber blaster, which I think is really cool, but it does, you know, it reminds me of Phineas and Ferb, right? Oh, we're allowed to do modifications now? Or the Lego thing, this is awesome, with blades sticking out all over the place in relation to what Mark and I have talked about quite a bit on Star Wars Beyond the Films with this new lightsaber we're seeing in the trailer for The Force Awakens. So I guess my question is, you said, Jonathan, that you kind of want your lightsabers to be lightsabers, your blasters to be blasters. Do you feel like what we're seeing here is another of these sort of, oh, we've got to up the ante because regular lightsabers just aren't cool enough. We had to have double-bladed. Now we got to have this type and this type and this type. 
as if somehow the original version just isn't good enough anymore. Is that part of your concern? Yes. In some ways, I think it is. They're trying to make something new and unique because, you know, apparently lightsabers aren't just cool in themselves. But I think the other thing that I guess I have an issue with is what Barrett said earlier. They created this to to really draw the kids in, that this this may have been designed as a toy first and a story piece second, that they incorporated this because, hey, you know what? Everybody already has these telescoping lightsabers or these, you know, FX, you know, ultra FX lightsabers. But now we have something different. So we'll be able to put out an electronic lightsaber that also is a blaster. And we could sell tons of these. And this is, in some ways, in my mind, possibly the downside of Disney's influence on Star Wars, that they're going to market the hell out of it. And it's something that kind of almost kind of hammered home to me over, you know, d- during this time off that I've been with my kids. At one point, we went to downtown Chicago, we went to the Disney store, and you know, my kids and my wife were like, oh, wow, look at this whole wall of Star Wars stuff. And I looked at it and it just kind of like, oh, my God, they're putting Star Wars on everything. I mean, yeah, there's there's some cool ships. They had the figures. The, there's some clothes. But then you get this little like stormtrooper whack-a-mole thing and this spinning Darth Vader head. And I'm just like, oh, God, I mean, just stop. It's 1999 all over again. <laughs> but it's but it's worse in my mind. I mean, I mean, you, you see a bin of stuff with Disney princesses, you know, on it, and then the bin next to it is the same thing, but it's dark, it's black, and it's got Darth Vader's head on it. And I'm just like, oh no. But that's neither here nor there. This episode, in my mind, was still a very successful episode. And who knows? I could change my tune about this lightsaber as we see it used in the storyline. You know, my initial impression may not have been the most positive thing in the world, but my initial impression of the Inquisitor's lightsaber was also not the, you know, before I saw it in the show was not the most positive. So we'll have to see. One other thing before we end tonight that I wanted to call out was both the music and the animation in this episode. I noticed things this time that I had never noticed before. First of all, I loved the callbacks to the classic John Williams score throughout this episode. I thought it was used really well, it was appropriate, and it was completely seamless. The other thing that I loved was some of the animation details. One thing that occurred to me that I don't think they ever would have done in Clone Wars is at one point Ezra and Kanan are around the temple, and you see their breath. It's just a little thing, and it it heightened the realism for me. It's like, you know what? I love that they're thinking about these silly little details. Yeah, the elements were awesome. Uh, the, the way the temple was used, the temple had this Indiana Jones feel to it. Uh, I liked when the when the door dropped, you know, and he's like, what am I looking for? Everything and nothing. <laughs> you know, the idea of the temple as a religion, as Nathan was saying it, you know, versus how I've always kind of originally thought it being as a training center, definitely changes a lot of, of the ideas of where all these are at. I mean, the fact that, oh, hey, there happens to be one on Lothal uh, and it's still standing. That was that was really cool. And, and the way that they use that throughout was just I thought it was brilliant. I mean, the last few of these episodes have been really on point. 
I, I think the the music didn't really stand out to me because they've been using the classic John Williams stuff quite a bit in this series, almost to a point where it feels like, you know, where's Kevin Kiner at this point? You know, where is he? It seems like a lot of times it's being essentially reused, although I'm with Mark from his first comment way back earlier in the show that I really appreciated the fact that in this case they didn't do the da, 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 jarring thing. Instead, they had music. Granted, it was classic trilogy music playing as they moved into that the end of that first sort of teaser segment, the cold open type segment. And as they went into what's usually that blaring music in the title, they just carried that music on through. If they were to do that with every episode, I think it would help with that jarring feeling that we get at the beginning every single time up to now. But I'm not sure that the, the art artistically, visually or music wise, it was anything greater or lesser than We've got with other episodes, this series has been doing pretty good on those all along. And they still managed to work in their Aladdin reference, right? He can be taught, as the genie and now Kanan say at the beginning. Now, you see, I didn't pick up on the Aladdin reference, but now that you mentioned it, yeah, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I'm looking at Aladdin references every show from now on because yeah. it's got to be there somewhere. Well, guys, thanks again for a lively discussion. I always enjoy this. I think we have a lot to look forward to this year, and I'm looking forward to discussing it all with you guys. We'll be back next time, where we cover the next episode, Idiot's Array. Till then, may the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, Droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved. This episode and the last two really show us that the series is going where it needs to go. And can you guys hear the fucking what? cat going? Oh, we can I totally hear the cat. God damn it. <laughs> All right, I'll, feed me. I may have to lock him in the other room here feed while... Feed me, feed me. Hongo, you need to go in there with your mom while she's doing her hair or some shit. Boy. Don't they have pacifiers <laughs> for cats? Or gags? Uh, it's, it's called yeah, knocking called, them out cold. They're called dogs. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, I'll go ahead and mute, and I may have to, like, get him into the other room or something. For all we know, the cat could, too, have an element of his, you know, natural abilities that touches the force. And that could have been what the cat was feeling. Or it could have been just the probing of Ezra and it felt like, like a brush or something on the fur. That's pretty cool.
or it was just startled by the sound of, you know, the engines. Every party needs a pooper, that's what they invited me. <laughs> or that. <laughs> My son, when we were watching it, I was like, oh, he's got the blaster. My son's like, that's not a blaster. And I'm like, no, but it is, it is. He's like, but he didn't shoot it. I'm like, but trust me, it is, bud, it is. <laughs> Do you want to say that again and not fall over your chair? Oh, I didn't fall. Oh, no, that's Barrett. That's Barrett. <laughs> Someone's coming into my room. They're trying to take. Sorry. Trying to take me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Say that again. Baron's the only well, guy who hasn't read the visual guide, so he's like, "It's a blaster, motherfucker, <laughs> bastard." <laughs> May 2015 be the death of that crossbow of Ezra's wrist crossbow, whatever the hell that is, for the new lightsaber. It's a slingshot. The slingshot or whatever. And we never discussed uh, the different sound that his lightsaber makes when he ignites it. Yeah, it is. kind of cool. I said it. Oh, my bad. I wasn't listening. Goodbye. It's like, it's like a lightsaber that farts. <laughs> Ezra, really? Come on. Will you please stop talking? <laughs>